too. But no, that was really good. I have no. You have a good like rhythm. I don't have any control over my vocal cord. Like I, I'll get like loud and have no idea I'm loud, and people are like, "Why are you yelling?" I'm like, "Oh, I didn't." Even. I have like. <laughs> yeah. Well, honestly, though, you had like a good like um, you were coming in and coming out. I think it like hitting kind of like some of the right notes. So. Okay. Cool. All right. Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick. And I'm Amanda Merck. This is Salute Talks. How often do you walk to get around? For most, it's rarely. A significant factor is widespread auto dependence. Across the US, large scale highway development, continuous roadway expansion, and a lack of funding for public transit, sidewalks, and bike lanes have led to significant and adverse outcomes. Auto dependence plays a role in numerous issues we're facing today. It negatively impacts climate change, quality of life, and individual safety. For many, especially those who do not have reliable transportation options, walking anywhere presents its own dangers. In 2018 alone, over 6,200 people walking were hit and killed by people driving. Pedestrian fatalities in the U.S. have increased by 41% since 2008. This is unacceptable, according to our guest Ian Thomas, the state and local program director of America Walks. In fact, he says zero people walking should be killed by people driving. And if communities throughout the U.S. take dedicated action, that goal could become a reality. Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You're welcome. I'm pleased to be here. So why don't we uh, just jump in. Um, Ian, can you provide a little bit of background on auto-dependence and how that kind of dependence translates into potential dangers people can face walking? Yeah, I work with America Walks, and we're a national education and advocacy organization focused on encouraging people to walk, but also, and really more specifically, uh, building, designing and building walkable communities. And the reason we need to do this is that over the last 50 to 70 years or so, our communities have really transformed uh, in not a good way. <laughs> and whereas uh, walking was was easy and safe and enjoyable and a really um, viable mode of transportation for many people, you know, at the beginning of the last century, the way that communities have been transformed with the ascendancy of the automobile has made them very unsafe and indeed hostile to pedestrians. And many people in, in most communities all across the United States states are virtually condemned to have to do most of their journeys by car, partly because it's unsafe to walk, but also because the way that land use planning has proceeded, the distances, the typical distances people need to travel are too great. So you mentioned the decisions that we've made over the past 50 to 70 years have kind of created these hostile environments now. And one thing I'm really interested in is who made these decisions? Where did the funding come from? And why is that still the status quo? Briefly, I would say that um, federal government really made a lot of the decisions that pushed this forward. But there was huge um, external lobbying from the burgeoning automobile industry, 
the road building industry, all of the sort of subsidiary industries that have uh, really, you know, expanded as a result of the mass market of automobiles and their vision for seeing how that would happen. So I would say, you know, a key point in time was the uh, the federal interstate highway uh, bill uh, that created the interstate highway system, um, allocated enormous amounts of money, and essentially a, a, a perpetual uh, treadmill of, of very large funding allocations, the, the federal transportation bill, which is renewed every five years, to build a rapid uh, uh, highway connection between cities. And in many ways, I think that that was a, a decent piece of policy, and it was certainly very popular. Um, it allows people to move, you know, rapidly in private automobiles between cities. Where I think things went wrong, which was almost immediately, is that the exact same designs of multi-lane roads, um, specifically designed to move vehicles quickly as possible with as little interruption, um, and only that one mode of transportation were then inserted into cities as well. And if those highways had kind of terminated at city limits or where development started, denser development, and there was a phasing of the kind of transportation uh, options that people had into the city, then I think we would wouldn't be, you know, having to campaign for walkable communities. But what actually happened is that all across the country, roads within cities were widened, uh, were um, designed specifically to increase those traffic volumes, increase traffic speeds. Public transportation was actually shut down to enable this to happen. And, and that was the private car companies and so on that did that to sort of um, you know, pave the way, literally, uh, for a very car-dominated transportation culture in these cities. And it's amazing to me that it wasn't really until the 90s, as far as I'm aware, that anybody started, apart from maybe Jane Jacobs and one or two other people, started speaking up and saying, hold on, this is not really serving us very well. Right, yeah. And so auto manufacturers came in and they bought up and paved over transit. They came in and bought up streetcar and up cities all over the country. And at the same time, the federal government is paving these highways and then taking those highway design standards and applying them to cities. So is that what the 75th percentile can you kind of explain, like, what that is and why that's yeah. good or not good? Yeah, I, th I think it's the 85th percentile speed uh, um, uh, policy or practice that you're referring to. Yeah, that, that just blew me away when I first properly understood what that is. So for uh, anybody out there who's not familiar with the 85th percentile rule, this is a rule that traffic engineers use for setting the speed limit on uh, on roads uh, in cities because generally the national uh, the highways have the, the interstates have a sort of a national speed limit set um, so so the way they do this let me let me start actually by saying the way I would do it if I was in charge of things um, if we want to decide how fast vehicles should go on a particular road whether it's a new road that's going to be built or one where we just want to make a decision about how fast we want them to go. 
I would want to look at the um, number of pedestrians and bicyclists using the road and the ones that might do so in the future. Look at the land uses adjacent to the road. Are there street? Uh, are there schools? Are there you know residences, shops? Are there a lot of driveways? Are there a lot of turning movements? Is there a lot going on? If there's a lot going on, then the speed limit should be low and the speed should be low. If it's an open highway through rural or agricultural land, then fair enough to let the vehicles go fast because the safety issue is likely to be better taken care of by the fact that there's not all of these other uses of the road. It is just a highway for moving traffic. But in cities, you have all of these other uses. You have, you know, lots of intersections. You have networks of roads. So you have people in different modes of transportation, crossing and turning and, and um, you know, interacting with each other. So it seems sensible to me that we should set low speed limits where if a, there's a car crash, it's not likely to be fatal, particularly if a pedestrian is hit by a car, it's not likely to be fatal. And we know very well how to do that. Uh, there's some great data that shows that if a pedestrian is hit by a car at about 20 miles an hour, there's a very low chance that'll be a fatal con- collision, maybe less than 10%. But if they're hit by a car at 40 miles an hour, it's almost certain they'll be killed, up to 80 or 90%. So, And we know how to make sure that cars uh, don't drive above a certain speed. Um, and, and it doesn't it's not really about setting the speed limit and putting the sign. It's really about designing the road so that drivers respond to that road at a particular speed. And if you design, you know, wide, fast uh, lanes and a visual field of view that is that is long and wide by having things set back from the road and dead straight uh, and no, you know, um, islands or, or interference in the road, people are going to drive fast on those wide lanes. But if you narrow down the lanes, if you have windy roads, if you put in things like roundabouts and pedestrian refuges and, and, and pedestrian crossing uh, uh, interventions and so on, then people will drive a lot more slow. If you have the buildings closer to the street, if you have trees along the side of the street or even a central median with trees, then they, all of these things calm traffic down and drivers drive at a slower speed uh, uh, without even feeling burdened to do so because it feels like the right speed. Uh, it's a problem to take a road that was built for 50 miles an hour and put up a 30 mile an hour speed limit because people feel that this is wrong and they're going to exceed it. And then you have to you know, enforce that speed with police enforcement, which is very expensive and, and really is not a proper solution. So, therefore, as I come around to your actual question after all of that sort of preliminary, um, it is astonishing to me that the standard way of setting speed limits is to just design the road essentially to carry as much traffic as fast as possible, then to go out and measure how fast the traffic is traveling, and then set the speed limit to the speed at which 85% of the vehicles are traveling at or below that speed, and 15% are traveling above it. And that is based on an arcane piece of research from the 1950s, something called the Solomon Curve, which has been widely discredited in a lot of circles, or at least, if not discredited, uh, um, has been stated as being inapplicable to the situation in which it's being used. And yet it has been so pervasive in traffic engineering circles, in training and in practice, and really 
only very recently, I think it was earlier this year, the National Highway Transportation Safety Board finally issued a, a public statement about the 85th percentile rule, really questioning it as, as whether it really is a good practice or even maybe going a little further and, and criticizing it. So I think that that's a really good step, but we have to get city traffic engineers away from using the 85th percentile rule for setting speeds. Yeah, and are we seeing any anywhere? I mean, who who is seeing this as like a discredited mode for design and they're moving on and using other measures? Well, I'm not sure that I've talked to any transportation engineers that have ever said anything negative about the 85th percentile rule, but I haven't necessarily focused on that conversation. What I can say is that lots of traffic engineers, generally younger traffic engineers, often female traffic engineers, uh, totally now see the fact that these roads in cities have multiple purposes, only one of which is moving vehicles from one place to another. They are also places for human exchange, uh, for business to operate, for people to walk and bike and attend coffee shops, for children to use to walk to school, for blind people and people with physical disabilities to, to uh, navigate their community. Um, so many things going on. And a lot of these newer generation of traffic engineers uh, do not want to design those roads the way that they always were in the past. And many of them are actively involved in movements to redesign existing roads with traffic calming and pedestrian you know, amenities and, and slow down the speed of traffic through that process. In, in that vein, could you give us an idea, paint a picture for listeners of how pervasive this issue is throughout the country? How many communities need to focus on walkability? Well, it's really ubiquitous. It's really everywhere. Um, it's easier to, to maybe give some examples of communities that are making the transformation, that are focusing on walkability and livability because it's very much a minority. And it's hard to kind of have a community that's split like that, where part of the community is walkable and, and part of it isn't. There's always a lot of political tension and so on. And I also think it's, it's not just walkability. It's not just sidewalks and crosswalks. It, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to have good, good public transit because one of the biggest barriers to walkability is less about the absence of sidewalks. It's about the distances. And in order to um, reduce the distances that people have to travel in their daily lives, you kind of need to redo land use plans, create smaller lots, smaller units, and you need to get rid of the all of the enormous amount of space that's allocated not just to car driving on wide roads but to car storage in parking areas and you can't create a walkable community unless you can bring everything in get rid of a lot of the parking and if you get rid of a lot of the parking then you're really asking people to own fewer cars which of course has lots of benefits but a downside may be hard for them to get to those more distant locations so now you have to come in with much more space efficient public transit whether that's buses or bus rapid transit or light rail to efficiently move people around so Probably the answer to the question about who is doing this right, it's part of a very coordinated effort, um, which 
really has to include, at least for larger communities, uh, investment in public transit. And I think Minneapolis and St. Paul are two of my favorite examples where they've really built a lot of light rail over the last 10 or 15 years, a lot of bus system expansion. Uh, they have resisted the pressure to build a lot of extra parking. I know that was a contentious issue with the Green Line, between, uh, which goes directly from downtown Minneapolis to downtown St. Paul, about seven or eight miles. They've put a light rail line down University Avenue there. Uh, a lot of stations, which is great because they serve all of those local neighborhoods, many of which are ethnic groups that have set up in along that corridor, um, and they did not put any parking lots at those stations. Those are designed for the people who live close to there who will walk or bike to the station and then get on the train. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Rebecca Jones, Assistant Director of the Institute for Health Promotion Research. Our organization serves as a research powerhouse that fuels Salute America's content. Here at the IHPR, we investigate the current state of health inequities in America and how that impacts the Latino community. Our research investigates cancer, chronic disease, and other health disparities among Latinos in South Texas and beyond. To learn more about the IHPR and our work, visit salute.to backslash IHPR. Hi, this is Rosalie Aguilar, Project Coordinator of Salud America. As an organization, our mission is to help create a culture of health equity for Latinos. We work toward this goal through countless hours of research, writing, editing, and producing. If you believe in what we're doing and want to support that work, please consider donating to our cause at salud.to backslash donate. Thank you. For our listeners who maybe have never considered that speed limits, poor sidewalks are even an issue in their community, can you share some examples of how all of these issues that you're discussing can impact people's lives negatively, impact health outcomes, things like that? Well, maybe I'll turn the question around and say how slow speed limits and slow actual speeds, as well as livable communities that are safe and easy to walk and bike around, provide benefits to everybody in the community. So it's amazing how many benefits a community receives when we design it to be a livable, safe community. Um, the one that mo people most often think of is the health benefits. If we create you know, a safe community for walking and bicycling, the research shows clearly that people will walk and bike. If it's, a, if it's an enjoyable experience, people love to walk in particular. And if you create a safe and enjoyable place to walk, people will walk and they'll build it into their into their daily routines if they can, if they have a coffee shop that's near where they live or their children's school is close enough that they can walk with their children to school or the older age their children can walk on their own to school. Um, so as you see more walking and biking in these communities, then the population health benefits uh, increase. And that's where the push for the movement has happened over the last 20, 25 years, initially from the public health sector, uh, who has recognized that you can design communities for physical activity or you can design communities that are hostile to physical activity, and it has an in, makes an enormous difference 
Um, but health is just one of, of a number of benefits that we see when we intentionally redesign communities to be more walkable. Um, another one is reduced carbon emissions as we um, uh, drive less. Um, I, I always like to emphasize the strong synergy between walkability and quality public transportation uh, because nobody is going to you know, live their life entirely within the whatever, the one mile, two mile walk shed. People are going to need to travel further. And um, if you have good public transportation, then that takes care of those longer distances. Uh, and you don't have to own a car. So um, that more transit use and walking and biking and less car use has a significant, you know, carbon emissions impact. So a lot of cities, including the one where I live and I'm on the city council, have some quite uh, ambitious carbon reduction goals. We're set to reduce our carbon emissions to zero by 2060 community-wide and reduce our municipal government emissions to zero by 2050. Um, and we're going to have to really change the way things are happening in Colombia. Transportation uh, represents about a third of all of our carbon emissions, and we're going to have to um, um, increase public transportation, uh, increase walking and biking, reduce uh, certainly single occupancy vehicle travel, maybe encourage more carpooling for a while. It's got to be a big cultural change, and it's going to take several decades to do that. Um, but that's another goal that a lot of cities have, and we achieve it by making the city more walkable. Um, another one uh, is quality of life. People enjoy living in a walkable community. We see it in the National Association of Realtors data that the houses people want to buy preferentially, and this has shifted over the last 20 or 30 years. People want to live somewhere close to where their children can go to school, uh, where they can walk to meaningful destinations. Um, uh, and then older adults, uh, the AARP uh, has done a lot of surveys and, and understands very well that older adults want to live in more walkable communities. So we have a quality of life issue. There's also a clearly an affordability issue. Uh, it costs about $9,000 a year on average to own and operate a car in the United States. Tremendous number. The majority of, of American families have two cars. And that's $18,000 a year that they're spending. If you can create a walkable, bikeable, transit-rich community that gives a lot of other options, that two-car family can become a one-car family and save $9,000 a year if they're the average car-owning family right there. And another economic impact that you see, especially in smaller towns, in rural areas, is that um, when you create a more walkable, pedestrian-oriented, people-oriented business district in particular, so you think about the main street of a small town, maybe a county seat in a rural state, um, you revitalize that small town business. And I've seen it in multiple small towns. It's one of the best opportunities for increasing access to physical activity in rural areas. Um, and those small businesses that move into Main Street in pretty small units right next to each other with a sidewalk outside, um, and maybe people from farther out in the county, they drive in, but they park once and then they walk. Those smaller businesses are almost always owned by local smaller scale business people, the, the uh, spending dollars are kept in the community and reinvested. Whereas what you have in those communities uh, and what you're sort of fighting against is bypasses that go around the downtown area or fast streets that go through the downtown area and make it kind of a ghost land. And then 
nationally franchised, car-oriented chains, you know, department stores, uh, Walmarts, uh, drive-through, fast food places, all these kind of things that, that, that set up on these faster roads on the edge of town, and they're all nationally owned, so they suck economic activity out of the town and force those mom-and-pop shops to go out of business. So another example there of a benefit, especially for a small rural community, of focusing on walkability. Yeah, there's so many places here in San Antonio that you cannot park once and walk and go to all the businesses. And I just imagine all that they're losing out on if if we could, if I could, if my family could just park once and then pop around to all over. But that that's not the situation. This issue in all these communities that you've been able to see, does it impact certain groups, mainly underserved communities, more than others? Certainly the issue of pedestrian safety uh, is, is a much more serious issue in what we call underserved communities. Um, the issue of whether people walk more in low-income neighborhoods versus middle or high-income neighborhoods is, is a, a little more nuanced, but it is much less safe to walk in low-income communities, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, Historically, as the interstate highways were being forced into the cities, a very inappropriate move that we discussed earlier, um, they typically followed the path A of least resistance, where there was going to be less political opposition to our eminent domain process and people's homes and land being taken to ram a highway through. But then that that was... um, you know, more the sort of general political process playing out, but then very intentionally the highways were put through African-American neighborhoods in city after city after city. Painting a picture for listeners, these highways that run through these communities, it's almost like it's a giant wall that has weapons on all fronts. Is that probably fair to say? Yes. Yes, it is. It, it divides communities, and these, these highways are very often owned not by the city government, but by the State Department of Transportation, and State Departments of trans- Transportation have a very embedded culture of not wanting to do community engagement, not wanting to really get public input, resisting public input. Now, I want to add that some departments of transportation, and again, the Minnesota DOT is probably the poster child for this, but I would also say, mention, want to mention Oregon and Massachusetts, and and there are others that that are really transitioning to a more, uh, you know, uh, responsive set of policies and practices, listening to the community, holding public engagement sessions, and, and making changes, including slowing down traffic on these highways, putting in crosswalks, um, putting in roundabouts instead of signalized intersections, and generally making it a more multi-use transportation corridor, not just for moving the cars as quickly as possible. So there's a huge equity issue, and as walkable community advocates, pedestrian safety advocates, and particularly the burgeoning Vision Zero movement, which sets a goal of eliminating all traffic deaths and serious injuries on the roads within any given city that adopts the policy, have a strong equity component in their language, in all of the planning and and implementation acknowledging what's happened in the past and prioritizing improvements that uh, help the people that have been most harmed in the past. 
Thank you again, Ian, for sharing how communities across the U.S. can move away from autodependence and for illustrating how autodependence is counterproductive to environmental, economic, social, and health goals. To find out more about America Walks, visit americawalks.org or check out this episode's webpage at salud.to slash saludtalks. Salute Talks is produced by Rick Carrillo, Josh Papormek, and the media team at Salute America. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online at salute-america.org. Find us on all social platforms at Salute America to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check out our award-winning videos on our YouTube channel at salute.to backslash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded. Thanks for listening, and as always, we hope you enjoyed.